You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, Happy New Year, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, January 6th, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, what to do if someone is in cardiac arrest from CNN and sick of failing at your New Year's resolutions? There is a better way from time.com. Plus, the number one snack to help you poop, according to dietitians from eating well and more time permitting. Here's our first report. What to do if someone is in cardiac arrest by Jen Christensen from CNN. If you suspect that someone has gone into cardiac arrest, there are some simple steps you can take right away that could mean the difference between life and death. About 70 to 90 percent of people who go into cardiac arrest in the U.S. die before they get to a hospital because the people around them don't always know how to help. What cardiac arrest looks like. Cardiac arrest is when a person's heart abruptly stops beating. The most common rhythm that you'll see is something called ventricular fibrillation, which is basically like the heart is a bag of worms, it's beating chaotically, and it's no longer able to effectively pump, said Dr. Christine Albert, director of the cardiology department at the Smith Heart Institute in Los Angeles. The person collapses because the brain is no longer working, and there's just a couple of minutes that you have to try to get that rhythm back to a normal rhythm, she said. Warning signs can include shortness of breath, a pounding heart, weakness, and chest discomfort. But more often than not, cardiac arrest happens without warning. Someone who's in cardiac arrest will not have a pulse and won't respond to sound or touch. They'll either stop breathing or make gasping-like sounds, which aren't true breathing, but a reflex that happens when the brain isn't getting enough oxygen. What causes cardiac arrest? Cardiac arrest can be caused by irregular heart rhythms called arrhythmias. Heart failure can cause it, as can thickening of the heart muscle called cardiomyopathy. Cardiac arrest can follow a heart attack, which is when a blockage keeps the heart from getting enough blood. The muscle starts to die, but unlike with cardiac arrest, it will continue to pump. It might also happen because of electrocution, drowning, choking, respiratory distress, or trauma. A hard strike to the chest, as for a baseball player, could knock the heart out of rhythm. What to do first? Call 911. Use an AED. If you see someone with symptoms of cardiac arrest, call 911 immediately. You want to get professional help there as quickly as possible. When the heart can't pump blood to the brain and the lungs, the person may become brain damaged or die within minutes. If someone else is around, divide the duties. One person should call 911 while the other looks for an automated external defibrillator or AED. These lightweight devices can jolt a person's heart back into regular rhythm. They're often found in public places like airports, offices, and schools. An AED may look daunting, but it's designed for use by anyone, even untrained bystanders. When you press the power button, the device will give you step-by-step -step voice instructions on where to put the electrode pads on the person's chest. 
Once the pads are in place, the device measures the person's heart rhythm. It won't deliver a shock if the person doesn't need one. But if they do, the AED will tell you to stand back and push a button to deliver the shock. Start CPR. After using the AED, or right away if you don't have access to one, start chest compressions. Put your hands in the center of the person's chest and press hard at 100 to 120 beats per minute. It may help to hum a song with this tempo like Stayin' Alive by the Bee Gees, Justin Timberlake's Can't Stop the Feeling, or Lady Gaga's Just Dance. You are literally acting like an external heart, said Dr. Camilla Sasson, a practicing emergency medicine physician and vice president for science and innovation for emergency cardiovascular care within the American Heart Association. It can get tiring, she said, so if someone else is nearby, have them take over when you need a break. If they don't know CPR, have them watch you first. That's what we do in the emergency room, Sasson said. Locking your elbows gives you more leverage to push. With an adult, you typically use both hands for the chest compressions, but if you're helping a baby, use one hand. Some people will ask me, what if I do chest compressions and break a rib and hurt them? I tell them that this person is literally dead, and if they are fortunate to wake up because you did chest compressions, they're going to be happy that you helped save their life. There's a small number of people that get a broken rib, Sasson said. How to get training. Many organizations offer CPR and AED training. The American Heart Association and the Red Cross offer in-person courses, as do many local organizations. The Heart Association and the Red Cross also offer hands-on training sessions with instructors that are all online. Plan ahead. Sasson says it's important that parents of young athletes have a conversation with the child's coach to make sure they have a cardiac response plan in place that includes CPR and an AED. If someone has an accident at school, on the field, or during an extracurricular activity, everyone will know what to do. Families should also make sure they have a plan at home just in case. Who's going to call 911? Who's going to start chest compressions? Who's going to open the door when the ambulance arrives? Just talking about it helps. I think of this like a tornado drill, Sasson said. Hopefully, you'll never need to know what to do, but if that situation happens, you want to have a plan in place about what you're going to do to help keep your loved one alive, she said. Up next, sick of failing at your New Year's resolutions? There is a better way, by Jay Van Bavel and Dominic Packer from Time.com. And Van Bavel is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University and director of the Social Identity and Morality Lab. Packer is a professor of psychology at Lehigh University. We have an embarrassing confession. Our New Year's resolutions for 2023 are nearly identical to the resolutions we made for 2022, which were remarkably similar to 2021. 2020, and pretty much every year as far as we can remember. A year ago, we held such lofty ambitions. We would exercise more, use social media less, rise earlier, read more books, eat healthier, write more, reduce our carbon footprint, learn to meditate. We started strong. 
But a few weeks in, as January's cold morphed into the slushy days of February, a resolve slackened. Twitter reappeared on our phones, and we doom-scrolled late into the evening. Our warm beds seemed to grip us tighter when the alarm went off for our morning jogs. We began to hit snooze once, twice, then three times, and, well, meditation never had a hope. We had largely failed. Will this stop us from doing the same thing this New Year's? Absolutely not. But we have learned to approach our New Year's resolutions in an entirely different way, and we think you should, too. As the calendar turns from one year to the next, millions of people will resolve to reinvent themselves. On scraps of wrapping paper, crumpled napkins, or in fancy notebooks bought just for the occasion, we will engage in the annual collective ritual of listing the ways that we will, this year, be better. And yet, by some estimates, as many as 80% of people fail to keep their New Year's resolutions by February. Only 8% of people stick with them the entire year. Given this less-than-stellar track record, it is worth asking, what would we do if we were serious? What would we do differently if we really did want to stick to our resolutions for more than a few weeks? Psychologists who study self-control have advice about how best to stick to our goals. The worst approaches involve what they call response modulation, otherwise known as white-knuckling it as you stare down temptation. Good old willpower. The ancient Greeks knew that this was a terrible strategy, as evidenced by their myths. As Odysseus approached the sirens, whose songs would lure men to their deaths, he plugged the ears of his crew and had himself bound to the mast of his ship. Odysseus knew that confronting temptation without a plan would fail sooner or later. Instead, he adopted a strategy that present-day psychologists call situation change. This is, according to a review of 102 studies, the best strategy for exerting self-control. Rather than exposing ourselves to temptations and hoping we possess the willpower to resist, it is better to avoid confronting them in the first place. The Lord's Prayer asks God not to lead us into temptation. Situation change takes matters into our own hands. Dieters remove all the sugary foods from their kitchens. Recovering doom-scrollers delete the social media apps from their phones. Aspiring writers block off time for writing on their calendars, just as if it was an important meeting during which they must not be disturbed. Just as importantly, situation change involves paying close attention to our social circumstances. The people around us and the groups we belong to have a substantial influence on behavior, influence that can be leveraged to help achieve our goals. There is one exception to our lists of unfulfilled resolutions, one area in which we have been successful, writing more. When we embarked on writing our first book together a few years ago, we thought carefully about how to structure our social environments to propel us through what could otherwise become a dreary trudge of 300 pages. We set weekly meetings, blocking off time to write together. We met in cafes to argue over stories, studies, and turns of phrase. Working together created both social accountability and social support. More generally, we leveraged the power of groups by joining writing groups where we set goals together and meet each month. Groups help people achieve their goals by setting social norms and creating a sense of accountability. In our case, we have joined writing groups in which we set goals together with other people. 
really together. Each member writes their goals in a shared document and reads them aloud each meeting to make it transparent that all of us are constantly prioritizing our writing. Knowing that other people expect us to stick to our goals helps us make writing a priority when other distractions or temptations appear. But new research by David Kalkstein, Case Hook, and colleagues suggests that norms don't simply change behavior because people conform in an effort to please others. Rather, norms may limit the behavioral options that even come to mind. Drawing on one of their evocative examples, imagine that you're at dinner with a coworker. With your diet in mind, you are finishing the meal with a small espresso while they indulge in a delectable slice of cake. As you ruefully sip your drink, what are the chances you reach across and help yourself to a spoonful of their dessert? What are the odds that the idea of doing so even comes to mind? Near zero in both cases, at least in our experience. Everything changes, of course, if your colleague provides you the option. This is far too much for me. Would you like to share? Immediately, you confront a self-controlled challenge you didn't face before: stick to your diet or indulge. Putting this idea to the test, the researchers tested whether creating a norm against using technology, like phones and laptops, in class would help university students be less tempted to engage in counterproductive multitasking while listening to lectures. In one version of a course, the teacher showed students evidence that multitasking reduces learning. And established a social norm of not using technology. In another version of the same course, the teacher provided the same evidence and had students create a personal plan for not using technology in class. Norms trumped personal plans. On average, students whose resolutions not to use technology were independent reported spending 24% of their time in class multitasking. For students in the course with a clear social norm against tech, it was a mere ten. Importantly, people who were in a group with healthier social norms also reported fewer urges to engage with their phone or computer during class. Tempting thoughts came less frequently to mind. The need for sheer willpower was lessened. So when you create a New Year's resolution this year or work to adhere to one, consider joining a group. Whether you are at home or at work, think more deeply about how your good intentions can be supported or undermined by groups and their norms. You might form a running group with friends, start a book club with coworkers, join a local environmental organization, or attend regular meditation meetups. Of course, there is also the possibility that some of the groups you belong to have norms that contradict the goal you have set for yourself. If you want to reduce your alcohol consumption, for instance, you might need to avoid hanging out with your drinking buddies. Spend a little less time in their company and more in the presence of people whose own behaviors align with your intentions. This is how our groups can help us become the best version of ourselves. Van Bavel and Packer. Are the authors of *The Power of Us: Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony*. Up next, the number one snack to help you poop, according to a dietitian. When you need a little extra help in the fiber department, this snack has you covered. By Jessica Ball from Eating Well Magazine. 
Though it's not the most glamorous thing to talk about, how often we go number two and the appearance of it can tell us a lot about our health. And while the thought of talking about poop might make you feel uncomfortable, you are likely going to be much more uncomfortable if you can't go. Even dietitians can get constipated every once in a while. Luckily for us all, there are several foods that can help you poop, from black beans to oatmeal. But there is one food that's in a league of its own: chia seeds. Since chia seeds are the best food to help you get and stay regular, it's only natural that chia pudding would be the best snack to help you poop. There are so many reasons why chia seeds are super healthy, and their fiber content is the main reason they're one of the best foods to help you poop. Chia seeds are packed with fiber, boasting an impressive 10 grams per ounce, which is about two tablespoons. The type of fiber they contain is soluble, meaning it absorbs water. This is why chia seeds swell and turn into a gel-like texture when added to liquids. The water-filled seeds are what helps loosen up the digestive tract and get things moving. Beyond the gut health benefits, chia seeds offer even more. In that one-ounce serving, they have five grams of protein, nine grams of fat, twelve grams of carbs, and more than ten percent of your needs for calcium, iron, and healthy omega-3 fatty acids. The next time you need a fiber-rich snack, turn to chia pudding. All you need are chia seeds, liquid, and any flavorings or toppings that you like. Chia pudding is meal prep friendly and can be made in advance as a grab-and-go snack for busy weeks. And the proportion that they provide in the article is a half a cup of liquid, such as milk, non-dairy milk, almond milk, etc., and two tablespoons of chia seeds. And you can add some flavorings: bananas, berries, you name it. And there you go. Up next. What causes a hangover and how to alleviate it? By Danny Blum from the New York Times. The quest to cure a hangover, or at least make it significantly less miserable, has eluded scientists and laypeople for years. Today, there is a growing assortment of products that claim to ease the morning after symptoms, but many researchers remain skeptical of those claims. Here's what contributes to that wretched feeling, and some science-based advice. What causes a hangover? A hangover is the byproduct of acute alcohol withdrawal. As your body processes alcohol, it breaks it down into acetaldehyde, a colorless chemical compound. Acetaldehyde is essentially a poison, and as your body struggles to metabolize it, your heart rate rises, and you can become nauseous. In addition, alcohol works as a diuretic, occasionally inducing some of the most dreaded hallmarks of a hangover: sweating, diarrhea, vomiting. Those, in turn, dehydrate your body further and can cause a pounding headache. What can alleviate it? The night of. The standard advice for avoiding or lessening the severity of a hangover is still the best: drink in moderation, alternate alcoholic drinks with water. And try not to drink on an empty stomach. Your choice of beverages also matters. Stick with clear, light-colored options such as light beer and white wine. Darker drinks like bourbon, rum, whiskey, and red wine can cause worse hangovers. 
When you get home, taking aspirin before you go to bed isn't likely to ward off a hangover altogether, but a pain reliever may be able to lessen aches when you wake up. What can alleviate it? The morning after, hydration is just as important the next day. For most people, simply drinking water or seltzer will be enough. But if you're vomiting the morning after, or if you sweat a lot the night before because you were dancing or in a packed bar, you should probably reach for an electrolyte replacement like Gatorade. Caffeine can help you burst through the fog. A cup of coffee may be just as effective as the caffeine included in some hangover pills. It's important to replenish vitamins after drinking, but it's better to get them from natural food sources. Up next, six vegetables that are healthier when cooked from Consumer Reports. You might be surprised to learn that some vegetables can be more nutritious when cooked rather than raw. That's because cooking increases the content of some nutrients and helps your body use others more easily. Here's how to unleash the nutritional potential of common veggies and boost their flavor too. Carrots. A 2008 study in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry found that boiling carrots until tender boosted the concentration of cancer-fighting carotenoids by 14 percent. Cooking tip: Boil carrots whole before slicing, which helps keep nutrients from escaping into the cooking water. Spinach. You'll absorb more calcium and iron from these leafy greens if you eat them cooked. The reason? Spinach has oxalic acid, which blocks the absorption of the minerals. But high temperatures break down the acid. One study found that boiling spinach, then plunging it into cold water, reduced oxalate content by 40 percent. Cooking tip. Blanch fresh spinach leaves in boiling water for two minutes, then plunge in ice water for a few more and drain. Mushrooms. Cooking concentrates the nutrients in mushrooms, so a cup of cooked white ones has about twice as much muscle-building potassium, heart-healthy niacin, and immune-boosting zinc as a cup of raw ones. Cooking tip. Mushrooms readily soak up fat, so go easy on the oil to help keep calories in check. For a flavor boost, sauté with garlic and sprigs of fresh thyme. Red bell peppers. These are rich in vitamin C, plus they're a great source of carotenoids, the antioxidants that aid eye health, which are better absorbed when cooked. Cooking tip: lightly roast or stir-fry bell peppers to maximize their vitamin C, which can escape in boiling water. Cooking them for five minutes generally gets you the most nutritional benefits. Tomatoes. Whether tomatoes are baked, fried, or pureed, heat increases the phytochemical lycopene, which has been linked to lower rates of cancer and heart disease. One landmark study found that heating tomatoes for 30 minutes at 190.4 degrees Fahrenheit boosted the absorbable lycopene by 35 percent. Cooking tip: Roasting tomatoes in an oven or air fryer concentrates their flavor. Put quartered tomatoes on a sheet pan, drizzle with olive oil and balsamic vinegar, sprinkle with garlic, salt, and pepper, then roast for about a half hour at 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Asparagus. A study in the International Journal of Food Science and Technology found that cooking these stalks raised the level of five disease-fighting antioxidants 
by 23 to 98%. Another study found that cooking asparagus more than doubled the levels of two types of phenolic acid, which some studies have linked to lower cancer rates. A cooking tip. To keep spears crisp and help them retain nutrients, dunk them whole into boiling water. Remove when bright green. Toss with lemon juice and olive oil. The oil helps you absorb the antioxidants. Boy, I feel like we're having a cooking class today. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.